0: Would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Book of Revelation. Uh, the Book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And we are finishing up the second to last chapter in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 27. begin reading in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. John, continuing in his vision, says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. For only those who are written in the Lamb's but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray as we do each time we come to your word that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from it. In particular today, help us to catch a glimpse of this vision of what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. Help us to see not only what it's going to be like, but what we will be doing as we gather in that place for all eternity. And remind us of the good news of the gospel that qualifies your people to be present in heaven forever and ever. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Those words probably uh, ring familiar in many of your ears. It's the famous soliloquy from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Those are the words that Macbeth uh, uttered shortly after he found out that his wife was dead. And as Macbeth considered and uh, thought about all that he had envisioned that he wanted life to look like he is consumed with a sense of the meaningless and the purposelessness of life he says life is a tale that is told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing life might be full of events and activities and things that we go through but in the end It is simply meaningless. Life is empty. Purpose in this life is but an illusion. A pastor acquaintance of mine pointed out an interesting insight into this soliloquy. For Shakespeare, Macbeth was a tragic figure. And in Shakespeare's context, Macbeth was an extreme His declaration of hopelessness would have been shocking and blunt to those who were listening. But in our context, in our culture today, Macbeth's comments are much more commonplace. They're not that unusual. If God and the truth of his word are removed from the equation of life, then Macbeth's conclusions actually make sense. But these thoughts that Macbeth uttered are thoughts that arise not only from those who are seeking to find meaning and purpose in life without God. They also come from God's people at times. Times of suffering and trials bring these questions to the forefront, even for believers in God. And the book of Revelation was written to a group of Christians in the first century in the area that we call Asia Minor. And these were Christian people that were dealing with suffering and persecution and all kinds of trials in their life. And certainly they were tempted to wonder, what's the point? What's the purpose? What is the meaning? Where is God in any of this? And so God gave them this letter, the the letter of Revelation, to remind them of what is true. That God is at work in His creation. That He is in control and at the end, He wins. And how much of a blessing it is that He ended this wonderful letter of Revelation with this incredible picture of what is coming for those who are God's people. The new heaven and the new earth. the, The new and holy city, Jerusalem. He finishes with this picture of what is coming in order to help God's people to persevere to the end and to remind them that there is indeed purpose and meaning in this life. We are in a season of suffering and trials too today, albeit much less than the people of the first century were enduring. But still, it's a difficult season for us. And those who try to make sense of life, who try to think of meaning and purpose in life without God, are asking questions in the midst of the suffering and the difficulties and the trials. They they are asking good questions to what is the purpose of life? What is important? And Revelation 21 is a great place to go to answer those questions. But Revelation 21 is also important for those of us who are Christians to get a picture, to get a reminder of what is coming, of the new heaven and the new earth, that when Jesus returns, this is our eternal destiny. It's meant to fill God's people with strength and hope that we might persevere to the end and persevere even through the most difficult of trials. The last few weeks we've been looking at this vision that John gets of heaven and we've been thinking about what he says about the new heavens and the new earth and we're going to continue that today and today as we try to get a glimpse of that to be filled with a sense of purpose and meaning in this life let's look and see what he tells us about what heaven will be like and let's also look and see what he says of what we will be doing when we get there and then let's also talk about Who it is that gets to go. So first of all, what does John see and what does he tell us about what heaven is going to be like? Now, when the people that were reading this for the first time heard verse 22, where it says that John saw no temple in the heavenly holy city of jerusalem that would have been very strange it would have been very surprising to those people in the first century hearing this pretty much every city in the ancient world had some form of a temple a place for people to meet with their various gods that they believed in and perform various religious rituals but especially It would have been surprising for believers, Christians in the first century to hear that there's no temple in heaven. That the concept of a temple has such a long and rich history in the Bible. We look even at the very beginning chapters with the Garden of Eden, which functioned as a sort of temple where God and his people, Adam and Eve, dwelled together in perfect harmony and fellowship and communion. Later in Genesis, we read about how Moses was told to build a mobile temple, often referred to as the tabernacle, for God to use in the midst of the wilderness. Later, as God's people settled in Israel, Solomon was given instructions to build a permanent temple that became a source of great joy for the entire nation. After God's people were sent into exile because of their unfaithfulness, because of their unwillingness to repent and to turn to God, they were sent into exile and when they returned from exile, they were given instructions for building a new temple in the new city of, of Jerusalem. And then when Jesus arrived, we are told that he tabernacled among us. He came and dwelled with the people. And he even called himself the temple. And then after Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended back to heaven, the Apostle Paul says that now the body of Christians is a sort of temple for the Holy Spirit. And we have the Apostle Peter as well, speaking about Christians being God's spiritual house. This idea of of a temple, of a place where God and his people would meet and dwell together, a place of worship, a place of glorifying God, was such an important and central element in the life of God's people from the very beginning. The Old Testament prophets had even prophesied that a day would come when there would be an ultimate and perfect temple in heaven. And so when the readers came to verse 22 and they hear that John sees no temple in the city, it would have been incredibly surprising to them. So thankfully, John explains why there's no temple at the end of verse 22. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. We saw this a little bit last week as we got the dimensions that were given to us of this new holy city, Jerusalem, Uh, the dimensions of a cube uh, symbolizing the holy of holies from the Old Testament, the place in the temple and the tabernacle where God dwelled with his people. And so, what John is telling us, what John is seeing here, is that what heaven is going to be like is that there will be no need for a physical temple building for us to go to to worship because God is the temple and He will dwell with His people immediately. This is what heaven's going to be like. God will give us the the blessing of being in fellowship and in community with Him immediately, direct access to the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, to be in the immediate direct presence of the Lord means that there's no place that we have to go to worship him. His presence fills his glory, fills all of the heavens. And that means that for us, we will experience perfect peace and contentment. We will understand and know what limitless joy is really like. We will have every desire and every need fulfilled perfectly. It really takes us back to the very first pages of the Bible. As God describes the Garden of Eden. As we read the last chapters in the Bible. Chapters 21 and 22. It really gives us a picture of going back to the Garden of Eden. And yet... What we have described in chapter 21 and 22 is a more perfect and ultimate garden of Eden. Because as we see in verse 27, nothing unclean will ever be able to enter this heaven, this garden. We know that this place will be a place of perfect safety and absolute security. That's the reason why we read in verse 25 that the gates will never be shut. Why would the gates need to be shut? There is never night. There is no darkness. Those symbols of evil and brokenness. And we read in verse 23 that the glory of God and of the Lamb will fill the heavens so that there is no need for the sun or the moon. This is a picture of, of a place that is filled with the glory of God. It is full of God's light. It is always good. It is a place that is safe. It is a place that is secure. That's what it means to be in the immediate presence of God. And as we start to understand that this is what heaven is going to be like, it shows how unique the Christian faith actually is. One of the significant things that makes Christianity unique is that God dwells immediately with his people we have we have direct access to him almost every other religion teaches that the people must jump through various hoops in order to get to God if they ever can But Christianity shows us, the truth of God's Word tells us that God comes and dwells with His people. He does that in the Garden of Eden. He does that through the tabernacle in the temple. He does it through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to earth. And we have this promise that one day forever, we will have immediate and direct access with our Father in heaven. Christianity is unique. Dr. Michael Kruger, who is the president and one of the New Testament professors at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, has said this. Eschatology, which that's just a big theology word, which means the study of the end times, of what comes at the end. Eschatology is not so much about millennial positions or the structure of revelation, but it is primarily about the problem of evil and how that problem will be solved. Eschatology is about how one deals with the sad things in this world. Everyone has an eschatology. Christian, atheist, agnostic, Hindu, everyone has to give an account for how evil will be dealt with. The question is whether their eschatology is coherent and compelling. The eschatology of Christianity, the eschatology of the Bible is very coherent and compelling. Not only does it account for how evil will be dealt with and destroyed forever as we have seen in the previous chapters. But also, it tells us about how God and his people will dwell together in heaven forever. We will have immediate access to the Lord God Almighty, our Father. This is what heaven's going to be like. Well, what does it tell us? What does Revelation 21 tell us about what we'll be doing when we get there? We get a little bit of that in verses 24 and 26. We read that by the light, its light, that is the light of the glory of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. By their light, by its light, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. John knew his Bible very well. Here in these verses, John is going back into the Old Testament, and he is remembering Isaiah chapter 60. And he's taking Isaiah chapter 60 and he's applying it into the vision that he's seeing of heaven. The context of Isaiah 60 is very interesting. God spoke to his people through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And the first part of Isaiah's book is is a warning to the people of God that they must return to the Lord, that they must repent of their sins or face exile. Eventually, they did go into exile. And the end of Isaiah's book is filled with hope and encouragement of what would happen when they came back from exile. And in Isaiah 60, there is a promise of a new city, Jerusalem, and a new temple of God that would be built When they return from exile, that prediction, that prophecy in Isaiah is so glorious that even the famous pagan nations and kings would come to it and bring their wealth and bring their gifts in celebration for the reestablishment of the temple in Jerusalem. But the picture that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 60 is almost too perfect. It's almost too glorious. It couldn't possibly apply to the physical city of Jerusalem after exile in every detail. But it did apply to a future heavenly city. So John picks up on what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 60. And he applies it as he describes heaven in Revelation 21 in greater and more perfect fulfillment. So when we read in verses 24 and 26 that these kings and the nations will come into heaven and bring glory and bring, bring their gifts and their wealth in celebration of the king, these are not the pagan kings and the nations that Isaiah 60 referred to. These are God's people. These are the people of God coming into the new heaven and the new earth, into the heavenly and holy city Jerusalem, bringing their gifts and their glory and their honor. And so what does that mean? I think it means two things. Obviously, it means God's people as we come into heaven, we will worship King Jesus. Each of God's people will bring the story of their redemption into heaven. The story of God's redeeming love and grace. And heaven will be full of the worship of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb for the work that He has done in creation and redemption. We will bring all of who we are into heaven and we will use all of who we are to give glory and honor and worship to God for, for all eternity. But I think it means something else. In addition to worshiping King Jesus, I think what this is referring to of what else we'll be doing in heaven is that we will be serving King Jesus. This is a picture of God's people bringing all of their abilities, all of their gifts, all of their talents into heaven that they might serve and enjoy the Lord forever. Now, where do those things come from? Is it that uh, when we die or when Jesus returns that we will simply be given these things that we're then to use forever in the kingdom? Uh, Perhaps there's something like that that happens. But I think uh, more likely what this is talking about is that these are the gifts and the abilities and the talents that we are given now here in this life to use for the glory of God now and here and for all eternity. There is continuity between the talents and the abilities that we are given by God to use here and those talents and abilities that we will be using in heaven to glorify and enjoy the Lord forever. Do you see how this gives significance and value to the talents and the abilities that we have now? Maybe those are things that you're just naturally good at and enjoy doing. Maybe they're things that you have studied and trained to get good at. Maybe they're things that you use in your vocations. Maybe there are things that these are things that you do as hobbies and extracurricular activities. The things that God has given to us that we enjoy, that we're good at, that we have ability in, are not things that we only use in this world. Perhaps these will be the things that we will be bringing into heaven to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's importance in cultivating these gifts and abilities now. Cultivating the gift of artistry, of studying and learning, of caring for others, of gardening and taking care of the land, of singing, of telling the stories of Scripture, of practicing hospitality, of genuinely getting to know and encourage others. This is part of what gives us purpose and meaning in this life. God has given His people these gifts and abilities and talents to use now, to glorify and enjoy Him now, but to glorify and enjoy Him as we take those with us into heaven to serve Him and to serve others for all eternity. One last thing that the text shows us that helps to give us some meaning and purpose in life. And that is, who is it that's going to be here in this place that we're being, uh, that's being described to us? Now, we've already talked about who doesn't get in in previous verses. Uh, we looked at verse 8, and it's pretty clear. Chapter 21, verse 8 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars... Their portion will be not in heaven, but in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And John gives a restatement of that at the end of our passage today in verse 27, where he says, nothing unclean will ever enter heaven, nor anyone anyone who does what is detestable or false. Those words, detestable and false, are words that are often used in the Bible to describe idolatry. Of worshipping anything in place of the one true Lord God Almighty. These are the kinds of people that will not get into heaven. So who is it that can get in? Well, we read at the end of verse 27, the answer to that question. It's only those who who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know about you, but as we hear that contrast, as we hear the contrast of verse 8 and the kinds of people that won't get into heaven, and then as we read that there will only be those who are clean, those who are never false, who are never detestable, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, your mind probably goes like mine does to think, well, how can you get into this wonderful book of life? Does it mean that the people that are listed in verse 8 and verse 27 don't have their names written in the book of life? And I would say, no. There will be people in the book of life who have done the things that are listed in verse 8 and verse 27. You don't get your name written into the book of life. You don't get into heaven because you've never done any of these things. If that was the case, no one would be in heaven except for God Himself. So the question remains, how do you get your name written in the book of life? How does that happen? The Apostle Paul helps us here. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, he was speaking to a group of people that were professing believers in Christ and yet who knew the sins that are listed in chapter 21 of Revelation. And listen to what Paul tells them as he reminds them of what is true. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we go back to what Revelation 21, verse 8 says, and we see these lists lining up very, very closely. And we wonder, well, where's the hope in that? Well, we read what Paul says right after those words. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ah! There is the answer for how one's name can be written in the book of life. You must be washed. You must be cleansed by Jesus. Justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, which means having your sins paid for in full. Being declared righteous in the sight of God for all eternity. And that only comes through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you are united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have your name written in the Lamb's book of life for all eternity. And everything that we see in Revelation 21 will be yours to enjoy. There's an interesting made-up story. I don't know where it originated. I actually looked it up again this week and couldn't find its uh, place that it originated. It's not exclusively a Christian story, but it points to something that we see here in Revelation 21. The story goes like this. A young woman went to her mother one day. The young woman had been dealing with a lot of difficulties in life, a lot of trials, a lot of suffering. And so she went to her mother And she began to explain how discouraged she was, how despondent she was, unsure she was going to be able to make it through, tempted to give up and to give in, tired of fighting and struggling. The mother took her daughter tenderly to the kitchen. The mother took three pots and filled them with water, turned the stove on and put the pots on the stove. She then waited for the water to boil. She didn't say a word to her daughter. But after about 20 minutes, she turned off the burners and she took a group of carrots and she put it into the first pot. And then she took an egg and she put it into the second pot. And into the third pot, she took some ground coffee beans and she put it into the third pot. And again, she sat down without saying a word to her daughter. After several minutes, she got up and she fished out the carrots and the eggs and she put them into a bowl. And then she took the coffee and poured it into a cup. And she turned to her daughter and she asked her daughter, what does this mean? The daughter went and looked at each of the things and she says, well, I see carrots, I see eggs and I see coffee. Her mother told her to take one of the carrots and to feel it. She did, and she noticed that the carrot, although it had been hard, resilient before it went into the boiling water, now felt soft and weak. The mother told her to take an egg and to break it, and she did. And after she peeled the shell, she saw that although this egg had had a liquid center before it went into the boiling water, Now it was hard-boiled. And the mother told the daughter to take a sip of the coffee. The daughter took the cup and held it up to her nose, and she smiled as she took a drink, taking in the rich aroma. The daughter sat back and said, Mom, what does this mean? The mother explained the point that she was trying to get across. Each of the objects faced the exact same adversity. The exact same situation, boiling water. But each of them had reacted differently once they were in the boiling water. The carrots had gone in strong and hard and resilient, but had ended up soft and weak. The egg had gone in fragile with a thin layer of protection and had come out hardened on the inside. But the coffee beans were unique. The coffee beans, after being in the water, actually changed the water. So the mother asked the daughter, Which one do you think that you are? How do you respond when trials and difficulties and suffering come? Maybe you're like the carrot. You seem strong and resilient at the beginning, but when the trials and the hardships come, you end up soft and weak. Maybe you're like the egg. You start with a soft heart and spirit, but when the trials come, when the suffering comes, you become hardened and bitter on the inside. Or maybe you're like the coffee. When the water gets to the hot beans and releases that flavor and fragrance, you actually change the adversity that you find yourself in. This is the point. Not so much from the story, which isn't a Christian story in itself. But faith in the Lord God Almighty, belief in His Word, is meant to change how we respond to the adversity that we find ourselves in. Yes, maybe it's a cheesy story. But the more that John's vision of heaven, of what it will be like and what we will be doing when we are there, and how it is that we actually get there, the more that that vision grips us, The more that we will be able to endure suffering and trials and difficulties and even persecution. The more we will have a true and biblical sense of our ultimate meaning and purpose in this life and the one to come. And by the way, the reason why we should believe all of this is not simply because I'm saying it to you. But it's because of what we read in verse 5 back in Revelation 21. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you can believe what Revelation 21 tells us because they are trustworthy words. They are true words. This is what is true of you if you are in Christ Jesus. So have hope. Have hope in the midst of these temporary suffering difficulties that we endure now, but have hope in the midst of the greatest struggles and difficulties that this life could ever throw at us. Have hope that one day what we read about in Revelation 21 will be true of us. And so that helps to give us meaning and purpose now as we live in this life, waiting for that day to come. Let's pray together. Father, as we read Revelation 21 and as we get into Revelation 22, it's almost too much for us to take in. We can't understand exactly what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. But I pray that you would give us at least little understandings that would fill us with hope, that would fill us with the strength that we need, that as we endure incredible difficulties and trials as we fight and lean and labor against our sin, that You would strengthen us to persevere to the end because the end is worth it. That You would help us to see the purpose and the meaningfulness of life because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb in whose book our names are written because of His grace and His mercy. And as these truths grip our hearts and our minds, I pray, Father, that we would be the people of of complete hope and peace. That we would delight in glorifying you and enjoying you now and for all eternity. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.